Well, for today's Leadership in Action interview, we're most fortunate to be joined by Rick Haythornthwaite, Chairman of MasterCard's Board of Directors, President of Petro Saudi International UK, and also an advisor to Star Capital Partners Limited. Rick started out with BP, rising to become President of BP Oil Venezuela, before moving on to serve as Director of Premier Oil PLC. In 1997, he joined Blue Circle Industries, now Lafarge, as Chief Executive, and then from 2001 to 2005, held a similar position at Invensys. In addition to his extensive commercial commitments, Rick is also very active in supporting the arts, chairing the Southbank Centre's Board of Governors and also Chairman of World Wide Web Foundation, among other numerous appointments over the years. Rick, my first question has to be, how do you juggle so many different roles? Um, well, I think having a very good PA and a tolerant wife is a good place <laughs> to start. Uh, I think that um, one's got to be able to compartmentalise one's life. Uh, there's being quite clear that when one's giving time to one particular role, that it's absolute, can't juggle. Uh, being disciplined about diaries, being very disciplined about... Uh, what needs to be done um, and all that sounds very simple but, but actually quite often just doesn't happen in people's lives when you've got one role so no, I, I think it's and also making sure that whilst one has a what appears to be a very broad portfolio actually each of those elements inform each other in some ways so it, it, is, it is fascinating just to see some of the linkages between the two and, and what I, I enjoy about it is that uh, one, one can uh, um, work with the networks in all of those areas to, to mutual benefit. Mm-hmm. Great. So your career has often required you to lead significant organisational and cultural change. Can you tell us the secrets of success with that? Well, I think the, the, the approach to... to change, organisational change, cultural change, process changes, you know, the, the textbooks are full of it, uh, a description of that, but I, I've always felt and, and always really uh, sort of held a lifelong inquiry, as it were, into how do you accelerate that change, um, you know, how do you move beyond uh, route maps, Metrics, values, everything we are so so familiar with, um, because frankly, I think when when change fails, uh, it's quite often through boredom or exhaustion, or actually things are taking so long that the forces for stasis regroup. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that, you know, in many ways, to think about how does one accelerate, and and I, I think this is three three areas that I would focus on. Um, one is 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 really about uh, making sure coaching and formal education is kept very practical it can often get very theoretical Uh, and when I say practical I mean giving people day-to-day access uh, about how to change the way they think and act and and being very precise in in putting at the center of change programs that there are a new set of virtuous behaviors you know I want you to behave this way and not this way and be absolutely quite simplistic in the way all that is reinforced whether it's through remuneration systems whether it's through um, coaching dissection of events you know and, and always focusing on the how not the what by and large people understand the what they come to work as bright enthusiastic people and they know what they have to do but often what's missing is how they do it and so 
focusing on that and then also on conversations um, I mean the metaphor that has always uh, resonated with me for an organization is that it's nothing more than a network of conversations uh, most of the organizations we change there's no one picking up a spanner or a hammer or anything like that the only tool they have are the words that come out of their mouths and so really focusing on uh, what are the key conversations if you look at an organization actually not many of those conversations really matter and so by being really focused on that uh, working out what's getting in the way and uh, you will find very soon that uh, the reasons the blockages become very evident um, you find the opportunity to change vocabularies which are so important in change programs and and really then you can study whether people are listening really listening and whether they're speaking uh, with intent and discipline and quite often people are not and it's amazing how much change can be driven along accelerated just by getting people to hold better conversations than they have in the past so Coaching should be very practical, is the first thing. I think that the second thing I would focus on is, is just taking some risks. Actually, you know, change programs just seem so often like tedious root marches. Um, and a number of areas where I think you can take risks. I mean, first, and I've used this a lot, is take people out of the comfort zone with the arts. The arts are fantastic as a tool for change. And, and I've, I've seen it work to give examples, uh, you know, you, I've seen the creation of new metaphor in an organization, uh, the uh, making tough issues safe, um, diagnosing issues around culture, all of those actually you can, the they sound very dry topics, but with the arts they can become fun and you, you take what can be six month processes and, and get them done in six hours. I mean, that's, it's that dramatic. So to give you examples, I, I mean, I think when I, I took on um, the CEO's position at uh, Blue Circle, where they'd become a, thoroughly accustomed to the death by PowerPoint conferences, and you ended up with people who would turn up and they'd give you maybe 10% of their persona in the bar after the event, um, and they all lined up. Uh, and what I really wanted to get them to understand was you've got to start acting as a group. And by the way, there's a corporate center here that has a role, and you all have roles because it had become very, very disparate as a group. And <clears throat> and I, after the first PowerPoint pack, when everyone had settled into their comfort zone, we pulled back some curtains, and there were five piles of uh, uh, drums, percussion instruments, and pieces of old cement plants. And we created, through various breaks in the formal uh, business, a percussion symphony. And and people started to to get the sense of and they build metaphor around it they began to realize the the bass beat and how important it was for everyone else discussing it how when they were sent away to improve it they came back not having made something excellent they made it more complex and it it degenerated and and it actually this process one was great fun but it did produce a shared vocabulary a shared metaphor that replace the old language of business and so when someone said come on guys you've got to get the base beat right in the organization thereafter everyone knew what they meant it, it was a new jargon but it didn't matter they were thinking far more positively they carried this wonderful image from creating the percussion symphony and then of course not long after that we were attacked by Lafarge who at the end of it who we beat 
first time a cash bid had been beaten in 15 years. And afterwards, Lafarge actually said to us, the thing we could never quite understand was, when you moved, you moved as a company all around the world. And I think most people look upon that se- those sessions as being key to doing it. When, when I took on Invensys, you know, there were some pretty tough messages about the past. People actually wanted to defend the past. Um, and actually the past was, uh, really could be, be uh, characterized as around this very, very complex group of 28 companies, hundreds of brands, never integrated, most countries in the world, 76,000 employees, 220,000 pensioners. There were conversations, very rational conversations taking place all around the group. But when you heard them all in the same space, they, they were absurd. They just didn't add up. And trying to get that message across to people who are defensive anyway would be very difficult. Unless you get a, a stage and you line up six puppets and you put spotlights on them and you hold two conversations between two puppets, spotlights, and then two other puppets and two other puppets. And then they gradually start, the lights go faster and faster and faster until the thing becomes this hilarious mess. It took about six minutes for people to understand what was going wrong. And the great thing was, it then was humorous, it was harmless. And what could have taken us days to get through took us no time at all. People laughed, they moved on, said, okay, we get it. Now can we work out where the theatre company? Or, you know, I've seen examples where people through producing theatre have got professional playwrights in, where the, the aim, and this wasn't me, this is actually Red Hill County Council, which I think is the most superb use of the arts. Um, this CEO inherited a poisonous business culture, misogynistic, bullying, everything. And rather than attacking it straight on, he got two professional playwrights in from West End. So the aim is we're going to produce a play, and we're going to do it over two or three months. And they're going to go and talk to you. They talk to small groups. And they're going to write a first draft of the script. And they're going to come back and try the script out with you in small acting workshops. And as he went through this, what they would find out is that as people acted out, people would get out and say, no, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't say that. He would sort of say this, it would do that. And in each, each of these areas, whether it was about poor supervision, sexual harassment, bullying, you know, all of these scenes were being worked. And they started to get hear the vocabulary of what was being uh, said. It was put into this first-class play. Of course, everyone was stood off. I don't need to go and see this, but a small audience went. One found it hilarious. Two saw this as a mirror of the organisation. Three said, this cannot go on. And, and then turned around to everyone and said, you have got to see this play. In the end, every employee in the council went to see the play by their own volition and declared at the end that they got to move on. Could never have done that if you had a formal culture consultant or whatever. And we won glorious vignette in the middle of this when they were doing this, the, the scene on sexual harassment. And some guy in the audience, the small audience said, are you talking about me? Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, so the arts can make stuff safe. And, 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 uh, and then the diagnosing issues, that, that's, that's the example of doing that. So other risks you can take, I think not enough risks are taken with people. You know, one thing that you, you forget is that when you get to the top of a company, that someone took a risk with you at some stage. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in that position at 42 or whatever it was. And, and then you don't take risks with other people. But actually, there's no better way of, one, signaling the behaviors you want, and two, freshening up the organization by taking good young people and catapulting them through the organization, leapfrogging one, two, three layers. 
and and then people start asking questions, and and it just destabilizes something, but in a very positive way. And and then I think the other way that it, you can always uh, take some risks is to construct some projects that uh, where there's a clear beginning, middle, and end, and success is clear. And it might not fit neatly into your change program. But it allows people to think how to make breakthroughs in those areas, create outstanding success, celebrate it, and then there's nothing that pulls change through faster than success that everyone wants to be part of. And again, people try to be too neat in change programs, and actually you've got to sort of say, no, that's not what I want. I want to accelerate this. What does it, what does it take to accelerate it? So getting the coaching right, take some risks. And the last thing I think is, is that there's never enough real feedback about what's going on. Convection currents of feedback required. And and there's many ways you can get that done, but often the most uh, effective way is, is sort of a, a the circulation of senior management in coaching roles around the organizations, getting deep formal roles or consultants that are basically your agents of change in there who carry back what's being said, you know, what's actually happening. Otherwise, it's amazing how the middle layers sort of make it all look very rosy, and you can't afford that to happen. You've got to get it going back. So, I mean, there are many experts in change around the world. In many ways, people have done it their own way, but I've, I found this has helped me drive change much faster and therefore improve the chance of success. Bearing all that in mind, how has your personal leadership style evolved and adapted over the years as you've climbed the corporate ladder and had these different challenges? Well, I think that confidence uh, improves over time and with confidence comes the the willingness to uh, become a facilitative leader you know at first you think of course you generally in companies get to a position of seniority by being good getting it done yourself and uh, and then you arrive in this position where it's still within your capability, but it's not the right way to do it. And that's the dangerous middle ground. You can move to some point where you just come to realize you cannot do everything. You have got to delegate and find out how to get things done. So I, I guess I moved through that period fairly quickly because I was fortunate at that time to uh, sort of have spent time in within a big change uh, leadership team in BP and spent time at MIT and so it was, sort of happened in my career at just the right time that forced these questions upon me. So I was able to get come out of that uh, with with a having made that shift from being a leader from the front to someone that understood that when one does need to stand at the front to offer some direction but actually to work out then how to be a servant of the organization. And, and it's understanding how to toggle backwards and forwards between that and when to do it that uh, is important. And I think uh, you know, some of the things I've already mentioned is that allows one to be a servant to the organization is really in this coaching. So once you've set the direction, you've made it clear where you want to go, what the virtuous behaviors are, then it's all about quiet, quietly coaching and moving along and then making the tough decisions. And there are many tough decisions in, in change programs and by and large, I've taken on situations that have have required a certain amount of transformation, so at least. Yes. Um, <coughs> you have had to make some difficult decisions over the years, uh, instigating cost reduction programs and that sort of thing. Um, what personal strategies do you use for coping with the stresses that that involves? Um, well, the first thing is that I, I, I don't get 
unduly stressed. I think if you get unduly stressed, then you're probably in the wrong job. And and I think that uh, part of that is that I, I can keep life in perspective. Um, why? I, mean, I actually, it's. I think it's interesting that uh, if you look around. Um, ranks of senior people, quite a number of people actually had a tragedy of some sort at an early age. And and it had, for me, it happened to be my mother died when I was very young. And and actually, that thereafter, everything is in perspective. So there are times when, uh, you know, in times of change, there are people around you using the words like apoplectic and crisis, and, and actually, no, it's not. Um, we're all doomed. We're all doomed. Yeah, no, that's right. No, it's not actually. Now, now let's, let's. And so I think there's, there's. You've got to pers- maintain a calmness and perspective about it. And then, it's about respecting the people in the whole process. So you and you, you can't really uh, be respectful if, first of all, you haven't thought through what you're doing carefully, um, and thought through what it is you're committed to that has led you to the conclusions you've got that you've tested all of this before you move that it's not just you know your view going forward uh, that you've you've built a uh, a support around it once you've got it and then that that allows one to move forward I think then the, the d- decisions you have to make can be made uh, with support, I think it's important to have support of some people around you uh, who who really understand what's going on, uh, and then make sure that you, you can do it with dignity for everybody. And uh, and, and you know, I've I've always been a firm believer, uh, given that the toughest decision will always be asking someone to leave a company. Um, everything else is mechanics, but getting someone to leave a company is is never going to be easy. But um, I've always taken the view that. Actually, if they're leaving the company, it's because their future in the company is is not one that if they really knew it, they want to follow. Uh, that actually sometimes people have come trapped in through promotion to places they don't want to be. Uh, and and actually, I will always state to people that you know I, I come this conversation comes with a commitment to you to make sure you end up in a better place than you otherwise would have been. And and actually that doesn't. It's generally not proved empty. Empty. I will always take calls from them. I will always try to find out ways of, of finding new futures for them. And and I think that actually helps one cope with it, and and it helps the individuals deal with it at the time. So I think it's it is about making sure you you get the human side of it right. And, uh, and you know, to date, it's it's generally worked. What's been the biggest challenge during your career, and what have you learned from it? Um, I think that the, the biggest challenge is is probably um, the realization at times that you uh, you can't get everything right. <laughs> um, you know, again, fortunately, in, in one's early career, well, it's by definition one's early career. You've got lucky, and by and large, you made the right calls, and that's why you've ended up in the place you're at, and you've been in the right place, right time, all that stuff. And then you take on things where actually people start uh, moving against you. Um, the press doesn't like you. Uh, actually, some things go badly, uh, and and at that point, you know, it is. If you're one your chief executive, you can't hang your head and feel sorry for yourself. Um, but at the same time, 
you've got to be critical of what you're doing and and not simply say to hell with this I'm you know I'm right and I'm going to keep blundering on so I think those times of you know probably the 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 lowest point of confidence the times when actually you've got to think most rationally and and you know that's when I, I think I, I really learned you've got to separate fact from emotion and and that's quite crucial you know the times when actually you have incredibly bad days you and and you can't show that you know people are watching your every move as a CEO and you owe it to them to look up beat but you underneath you're feeling dreadful and there's two things you know one is if I sit down and I separate fact from emotion I'll find a solution the second is today will tomorrow won't be as bad <laughs> and I said, actually, you know, these these some days look just look awful. You know, it can't can't get any worse. But actually, you know, if it's, if it's bad tomorrow, will be better by definition. And so I think those those ways of, of coping, it's just really coping, uh, because as a CEO, again, even though you might build support groups around you, when it's going badly, it's amazing you look around. There's not many people around you. You you take those times on your own, and and that's just that's life. That's the life of a CEO. Okay. Um, corporations, by and large, seem to get a bad press these days. What can you do as a leader to help change people's uh, perceptions of big business? It's a it's an excellent question, and uh, it's it's there's no easy answer to it. I think the the, the first thing is um, to uh, amongst my sort of peer group of of, of chairs. I think that to, to, you know, we all all got to be clear that we have a, a common message and, and that get people to realize once again that uh, wealth creation actually is, is a noble pursuit and a necessary pursuit and, and second to have a clear understanding of what it looks like when you're just about to shoot yourself in the foot and so to stop doing that and I think those conversations are taking place but ultimately I afraid time is the is the only healer of this with time, and and then a broad political support, um, which in turn will, I think, drive public sentiment. And then the last group to move will be media, which is that's not a criticism, it's observation. I think the concept that you can you can uh, bludgeon the media into helping you is is naive. I mean, the media, it's what. They write what people want to read, and by and large, uh, the zeitgeist is companies are bad, and we turn that round through. I don't think think through a a blind pursuit of uh, good deeds because everyone sees through that. It's about long term, high quality delivery of business and standards, and and stop shooting ourselves in the foot as a sector. Yeah. Of all the many facets of leadership. What's the biggest difference that marks out the great leaders from the rest of us? I think the great leaders actually have a are able to take complexity and make it very simple, and and actually to there's no doubt that they don't great leaders don't have to write out a vision statement. They their whole persona, the whole way of talking, the whole way of acting, actually embodies a direction that is something that people subscribe to and it feels great. It feels motivating. 
and and they they have a confidence that allows them to smooth the the the, the, the rough patches going forward. That that what you've got to start with that, but it's not enough to just be that because I think those people also recognise that. Uh, Occasionally, people will follow. Sometimes you've got to reach down and help, <laughs> and and has the, they have the ability to understand when um, wh- where it is necessary to get involved in the detail of the organisation, where it is necessary, where the the, the real uh, key success factors, and get get stuck into that. And then I think they also. Recognise that you know when you when you're trying to, to sail a, a corporate ship, that you're generally sailing through rough waters and you're sailing through a fluky wind, <laughs> and and they understand actually when when the f- wind is in the back, and and when to take advantage of it, and 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 when just to rest for a while and keep moving, rather than a relentless and you know, from it's relentless and quite. I think grueling pursuit. Uh, they they understand how you can do this and, and keep an organisation that doesn't exhaust itself or in the end sort of just pile itself onto the rocks. Okay, just one final question, Rick. Um, given everything you've learned over the years, if you had just one piece of advice to help us be better leaders, what would it be? I think it is really this um, question of. Keeping perspective, you know, that an organisation depends on its leaders to to understand the bigger picture, to understand what the future could look like, and to create a compelling future within them. And if the leader doesn't maintain that, then no one else will. So I think it is maintaining that, maintaining one's calm, maintaining a clear picture of the future is the best contribution that any leader can make to an organization and then everything else will follow and and I think it's, it is the one one feature that every leader needs that every every leader then has a mix of other skills below that but absent that it's really I think one lo- loses the power required to make things happen. Thank you, Rick. Um, thank you for sharing some great insights, and in particular around the accelerated change. So, what's the next challenge for Rick Haythorpe? Actually, the next challenge is for me really is uh, around uh, the one that excites me the most. Whoever know, I never quite know what the next challenge is, but let me tell you the the uh, the one that's exciting me the most right now is really around the Web Foundation, because we are at. A most extraordinary moment in history. In the, the, the think about the web over its first 25 years, like we thought of the Gutenberg press 100 years ago, and uh, uh, you know there is a, a, a an activation of the public sphere like seen in, in, for centuries, and so at a time when our, our political elites are wondering uh, what new governance systems the world required. So there is there's a I think we're at a moment in time where the web. Um, can become a very powerful tool, and I, uh, chairing the the World Wide Web Foundation for me uh, holds uh, many challenges and around that that question because I think it's it's quite crucial to where we go from a, a global standpoint. So that's my big picture. Then business, who knows? 
Well, good luck and many thanks again for sparing so much time to share your experiences. Very good. Thank you.